the signature Paper Mario podcast of the Twin Geeks. Yeah, I guess that's something we can talk about. <laughs> Have you played a lot of it? Uh, I've played a little bit of it. Uh, as you know, I, I only video game a couple times a week. So while everyone else is having the time of their life playing Paper Mario and getting all everything done and finishing all the streamers, I'm about two in. So the the streamers take a lot longer than you would think. Uh, I, I keep like sectioning pieces I could play it for each day. And they end up being like three, four hours when I just think in my head it'll be a small amount. Yeah, it's long, long sections. Uh, you know, each like level or, you know, like like you know, part of the game is like two dungeons on its own. Right. Uh, with, a, with a lot of like interspersed areas where you're having character moments and... Um, are you at like the Shogun City or whatever yeah, it's called? Yeah, yeah, I just got to go do the boss stuff for that one now. That's best part of the game, hands down so far. <laughs> so um, it's all downhill from here is what you're saying. <laughs> it's kind of repetition of that from here, I think. Uh, whatever happens there is really the tutorial and probably where they should have started the game, mm -hmm. honestly. Yeah, it was definitely a long tutorial to get into it to begin with, but it's it's been fun so far. Yeah, I really love its personality. Um, I love popping toads uh, from from their toad hiding places. It's prob probably the best thing collectible aspect of the game because they they threw in too many other collectibles. This is all going to sound very repetitive, I imagine, because just before this one goes out, we're going to have a a daydream cast episode go up, and Pavlos is going to talk all about this before we get the chance to. So I guess we should say that we have the. Daydream cast still running, and we're going to launch uh, the Last of Us podcast. Uh, maybe we'll just launch one. We'll see how they do. It's been a couple months now. Well, yeah, we'll see if that comes to fruition or not. Yeah, we'll see if that comes out. Um, do people care it, uh, about Last of Us still? Of course, yeah. I think the major sites are still doing spoiler podcasts and everything, so uh, we're we're in tune with what everyone else is doing. Mm-hmm. And and mostly we've got to cover lots of video games here, as you can tell, because there's not a whole lot of movies, right? Yeah. Uh, Paper Mario is the only movie I've seen this week, so uh, I I'm loving it though. I don't have a I don't have like a huge connection to the series. I I play them all and I like all of them. Even Sticker Star and Color Splash I think are pretty neat, but uh, even even when the series is bad, I like it. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I didn't. I just finished watching a playthrough of color splash because i didn't actually play that one because sticker star made me angry when i played it's, it <laughs> it's an angry making game too it does not do what you what you want or expect right for mario to do uh, uh you know i just realized you did such a good job before then saying it right <laughs> i know i realized i had to correct myself that uh I, ezra pronounces it mario so i'm trying to correct her as well <laughs> And we were playing the hockey game the other day. She can't pronounce puck, so she kept yelling, I got a fuck. Uh, so oh, no. <laughs> I had to put that online to exploit her. But uh, every time she plays, what what's the ice hockey NES? She yells, I got a fuck, I got a fuck. It's embarrassing. I'm surprised that's not something you wanted to talk about to start us off since we're killing time here. You've got a new hockey team. Yeah, we got the Seattle Kraken. <laughs> I'm I'm starting another website and abandoning this one. It'll be the KrakenReport.com for um, all your movie news and uh, just Kraken related. Though uh, I'm not going, I'm only going to cover like the Pirates of the Caribbean and uh, deep sea nautical horror movies. 
We should have covered like Miracle or something this week to celebrate. <laughs> I, know. I know. Are there other hockey movies? Well, <laughs> hockey season starts in about a week, so I think if we do have like a Stanley Cup situation, maybe I could do Miracle around then. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mystery Alaska might be my favorite, even though it's not great. It's it's such a cheesy like bring the Russians to a small town in Alaska and have them play with the locals kind of. I mean. Uh, great hockey movie sounds like an oxymoron in and of itself. So, um, sudden jet, sudden death with the John um, Claude Van Damme. That's that's pretty peak hockey movie where he fights the Pittsburgh Penguin mascot. Mm-hmm. I'm w- I'm waiting for the gritty biopic to come out. <laughs> uh, gritty biopic would be good if, if they don't make a movie and turn him into like a multimedia character. Missed opportunities. Certainly, certainly, he's. Uh the best thing that we have in our terrible lives right now. I don't know what we'll do because we have Jerry Bruckheimer on board of our hockey team. So we could probably pull from like pirates of the Caribbean. We could probably get like a Kraken from there or something. Um, I hope we have a lot of movie production effects, like on our intros and, and we kind of take advantage of his connections. So So is it not like, are they going ahead with them with playing? Are they going to do it kind of like, uh, I think what's it? Baseball has been, lately where they have like nobody in the stands how's that gonna work <laughs> i saw earlier this morning 14 baseball players on our team got coronavirus so their their opener is also delayed uh, what do you expect we don't we also don't know if this will be like career injuring for a lot of athletes we don't know like the long term so it just feels irresponsible in general to even even try to start so we'll see oh yeah but you know People don't care. They're just going to keep asking for it. And so this is just placating people and, you know, allowing others to die in the process. That's how this whole situation is going to go for a while. Can you tell I'm very cynical? I've gotten very cynical about this. Uh, How couldn't you? I think everything is making me cynical. Uh, We got news today that uh, Tenet is releasing in international markets before here, and that's coming in Labor Day. But I don't even believe that for a second. Yeah, I mean, if it comes in Labor Day, it's going to be coming onto streaming because yeah. we're not getting it back into movie theaters till next year. What will it just like come to like empty states that are already like far apart? And I, I don't think so. I think it's coming next year for mm-hmm. us. But uh, for pirates, it's coming this year, uh, this August to China and everywhere else, I believe. Nice to be the one market behind for for once in our history. <laughs> in a- yeah it's it's a, the decline of the american empire right and yeah i think when movies go the rest of america goes with them once well, we lose that's, our that's, entertainments that's really all we've ever had is we've had pop culture clout and uh as, as soon as we lose that we lose that grip over the world then we just become you know some other canada, shit right? yeah <laughs> i don't Without know can- at least canada canada has healthcare. at least you know what do we have yeah like they have freedom and human rights so i <laughs> I don't want to mess with them too much. Yeah. Maybe they'll take at least like me and you. You, you want to move to Canada? Yeah, I do. Uh, <laughs> let's do it. Uh, I I think about it every day. It seems worth doing. I do. I've been saying it since 2016, but, you know, uh, who, who knows if they'll even let us come now. The second I get a hockey team, I'm moving to Canada. How sad. <laughs> sad news for people like me who are entrenched in the uh, – Hollywood's of old. 
the um would you say one of the final stars of the golden age yeah uh olivia de Havilland, who was uh 104 uh passed away i wasn't going to go for the pronunciation that's yours de Havilland. is how you say it it's not a hard one it's not like mario um <laughs> no uh and she she was in the running with uh kirk douglas who also passed earlier this year we had that Panza glory podcast honor him uh, and that they were both around the same age there and the last vestiges of the, uh, you know, the studio system, really anyone else who's left people like, you know, Shirley MacLaine or Sidney Poitier, they were much bigger stars. Like they, they came out of the 1950s, but they were bigger and made their impacts more in the 1960s and uh, kind of flourished there. Whereas de Havilland was a big name actress all the way back in the 1930s with one of her first films uh, in uh, Captain Blood and a bunch of other films she did alongside Errol Flynn, a bunch of his swashbuckling stuff like uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood, 1938. And of course, as all the headlines have proclaimed, she's, you know, in Gone with the Wind. She's a wonderful actress. Um, you know, she had a very great career throughout um you know, the, the studio system there. And she was also a big proponent in the rights for actors. Uh, you know, there was a big court decision where she sued Warner Brothers because they kept trying to extend her contract beyond, you know, the, the statute that was allowed. And she successfully won and, you know, uh, clarified uh, the legality in, you know, uh, you know, long-term contracts for people in the state. And so, you know, that was a big win for them there. Yeah, um, set a lot of legal precedents there and um, important beyond just her acting career. So uh, that's great that we could stop and remember her for a moment. Yeah, and again, a, a wonderfully long life and a great, very career. If you want to check out more films from her besides those, those couple I named also suggest uh, In This Our Life and uh, The Heiress are uh, two major ones that uh, have a lot of affection and people love. Uh, the Heiress I'm hearing a lot. Could you do yeah. like a quick sell on that? uh no i can't okay i have seen it no it's it's just i'm I'm naming off a couple that i'm okay okay, i'm not i'm not the biggest uh devotee and now now that you've outed me after (laughs) i did such a good job of faking it no you did fine um (laughs) well obviously i I like uh gone with the wind but uh that is in a lot of uh uh, hotter water lately (laughs) and it's uh well it is sad to lose the last cast member of an uh, important American film in some way, uh, mm-hmm. watching the generation go. But um, I don't know, time for new voices too. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a nice moment for me. I appreciate you giving me this moment. You know, probably the last time I'll get to talk about <laughs> a living celebrity, you know, from, from my era of interest on this well, podcast. The last celebrity that acts within your interest is gone now. And yeah. You know, it is strange. Um, I, I kind of like the contemporary thing because I feel like I'm almost having a conversation with the work itself. Like, I think that might be why I tend trend toward like a more modern stuff. Yeah, I, I like to start the conversation and be the first review. Honestly, I think I think for me it's just I hate today so much. 2020 <laughs> is so awful that <laughs> I just I just that. continually sink into the solace of a time period where. I think people weren't morons as much, you know, yeah. it's it's very easy to view the forties and 50 with rose tinted glasses, you know, and we remember all the good stuff. Well, they, the, they express like very controlled ideas in their movies, right? Like, right. I'm well, not going to show you what they did that was wrong. 
and generally as well, like the the racism of the time doesn't come across as much on screen because mm-hmm. it's not as like they didn't even let the you know black people on screen, so how could yeah. they be racist? I mean, yeah, the the racism may be so deeply entrenched that it doesn't even appear because it's all white pictures. Right? Yeah. So so lots of the bad stuff of the era is is less visible, but you know you still make yourself aware of it. Uh, you know I don't know I've just I've I have no idea how this came about. I think it was just like it was about watching some of the big name classics and then just falling in love with it from there. And I think that's how it happens to a lot of people. I think there's just such like stylistic through line too with that level of control that you could look and you could build like obvious connections from movie to movie. Yeah. Whereas things that are coming out now, I'm like a well, that's not connected to anything. I mean, yeah. uh, it, maybe they're starting something new or they're at the they're at the start of a career. But um, yeah, modern things, I mean, you don't have that like history to connect to anything. Uh, mm. Sometimes it's just what it is. But, but there is truth to that nostalgic slash comfort angle of it too, especially lately. All I've been watching is like, old hollywood musicals and uh you know like what ones i've never heard of by the way i've been yeah. watching and I, I don't know them you don't know stuff like Summerstock. i i've been thinking about Summerstock specifically because i have no idea what summer stock so, is summer stock is fun here I'll, I'll just pitch it a little bit here okay. i don't know if it'll convince you but you know gene kelly and judy garland star in it and judy garland runs a farm and her sister brings a troop of actors putting on a preview show practice in their barn and at first judy garland is like totally against it but then she falls in love with uh gene kelly and ends up becoming one of the big players in the show and uh it's a lot of fun yeah um i mean that's a that's kind of a soft sell but i don't know uh what's it called again the S- summer stock summer stock it's a weird name and well, it's, it's not it's not a weird name it's like a, you know the, the stock of like a festival thing you know where they put on Summer stock is a usual Broadway thing. I'm gonna stick with Midsummer. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I did uh, mention we did mention not long ago that we have to do more musical episodes, yeah. and, we'll, and we'll get there. But I think we got a, a a couple things lined up first. Maybe not Summer Stock. Maybe something you're a little more excited about. But yeah, uh, something people will listen to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Calvin, what have we ever worried about what people will listen to? Well. We can't also have the the entire audience for a movie dead too. We need we need the <laughs> audience to be alive as well. Uh, speaking of dead people, um, Strasburg, uh, fifteen eighteen, new Jonathan Glazer movie about uh, you know like those like laughing riots that happened in like France and Germany, and and like those dancing riots where one person um, begins dancing and that's contagion. Then like an entire city just can't stop dancing and it's like a psychological thing yeah i've heard about those like in passing and such before um it's kind of about that but it's driven by the most the most thumping like uh, mika levy score um it's like just as hot and alarming as uh under the skin but uh man it feels like so confrontational <laughs> um I, I made the mistake of like having it on while my daughter was asleep next to me and she woke up with like extreme night terrors because i feel like the music the music is so it's so affronting and uh um the the dance is really beautiful too um i fell in love with it immediately then i'm like looking around letterbox and there's like a dance troupe with the same name like strasburg uh, what was it 1518 they're like uh, they kind of stole our act and our name and we're not making any money so that's a weird mm. thing but uh 
I'm a I'm a big fan of Glazer and uh, just what he can do with an iPhone is a lot. I mean, just putting it in a static room, having people bang their heads against things and throw water on themselves. That's a my good idea of a good ten minutes or so. This is his uh, second short in like a year, right? Or yeah, least... we also we also had the fall a few months ago, which felt almost like continuation between like under the skin where people are being persecuted and chased into the woods but also a kind of middle ground for his next uh, uh, Holocaust movie where it is about persecution. What happens if you don't stop groupthink um, and someone gets chased down into a well and then they're just falling and falling. It's like, but what are you going to do to stop the fall? And what are we going to do to stop people who have these beliefs? Um, he's just, by far, he would be my favorite filmmaker of all time if he were prolific, but he's been away <laughs> for like 10 years. Like, in 10 years, I've just been saying every day since under the skin, I just want a new Glacier, and then he did like an iPhone commercial, right? Like a, a, a brilliant commercial filmmaker made the the best Radiohead um, music videos, I think, is a big part of why those are, are celebrated in like cult circles. Um, I'm just in, extremely enthused every time he makes something. Um, I love Birth and Sexy Beast, and Under the Skin's my favorite of all time, so... Uh, I, I'm just happy when I get new uh, Glazer, and this one is a lot like his Radiohead music videos. And uh, Mika Levy, I think, is must be my favorite composer. I wish she would do more too. Mm -hmm. Did she do something recently? I thought she or... did. Um, what was the What was the movie last year? Now it's escaping my mind. The uh, Colombian film with the the boys with with the cow, the sacrificial cow. Jeez. Um, oh. Uh, delays. Is that Monos? Is that Monos is the one? Yeah. Yeah, Thank I you. remember. All you talked about was the score for like ten weeks. <laughs> uh, Monos, she was just like blowing into a glass bottle, and then she realized conceptually that's her whole concept for the album. There, so uh, that whole thing is driven by her score and is very alive for it. Uh, I think the best score of last year, easily. But I, uh, I, I just love Mika Levy. I. I'd recommend all our stuff. Even something like Jackie. I know we're getting into biopics in, but <laughs> I that is so driven and it it has such a strong image of a person just through sound. Like I'm really interested in the audiovisual thing anyway. So mm -hmm. I, I I like her for pretty obvious reasons. Yeah, well, I guess that is a good thing. I guess scores and uh, scores and biopics and such is a good transition topic as any here to talk about the film that we picked this week. Um, so I think that we've been circling around doing this one for a while because it's a shared favorite biopic. Uh, I, I think we've both seen it a few times and, and greatly enjoy what it's doing. Mm -hmm. Let's shoot this fucker. <laughs> uh, so uh, did your experience change much at all? You're still extremely positive. Yeah, no, I just can't help but be enamored by this every single time I see it. Ed Wood is a very special film in... Uh, a you know filmography of a director who is special in his own right uh yeah. and, and i would say like I, I guess just to get this out of the way uh this this is the peak of tim burton's creative prowess he he hit a high with ed wood he had been working up to something that was a great fusion of artistry and ambition and a personal voice for a long time and this is where it was the best and then it started to slope after that and then just sank you know yeah, when absolutely. he totally sold out <laughs> not long after he has he has some peaks and valleys there 
here and there, but uh, nothing on the level of this and and his cooperation in um, Nightmare Before Christmas, of course. Yeah, and uh, the Ed Wood is special because it feels like it's very personal in lots of ways and that there's a genuine like human connection with the character of, of Ed Wood and the relationships with all of his ne'er-do-wells and such. Uh, you know, he's got a real troop of, uh, you know, humorous acolytes. He does. They're so great. Such great supporting cast. Oh, yeah. And so many great things like the, the, what the movie starts off with Bill Murray playing yeah. a, uh, um, oh, what's the, the word? Help, help oh, uh, sorry. No, no, no. I know the character's name, but the the particular position of it. I should have prepared this better. <laughs> okay. It's well, it's difficult. It's difficult to like if fix it as to exactly where his identity would fall in a yeah, modern but... context, because we're talking about a character in the 1950s who very gender fluid. Um, yeah. Well, the, w- once the the sex change operation never necessarily gets it or follows through. Uh, you know, they throw around the word transvestite a lot in the, you know, in the script, but that's not accurate. There a lot. Uh, non-binary, I guess you might say today. Um, I'd say yeah. non, non-binary. Not, not our place to, to specify, I guess, or to label, but he's very wonderful in the role and very charming. And it's always wonderful to see Bill Murray giving a shit in a part you know, because he's not always, it takes a, it takes a special director to kind of get him to, uh, effort. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he's emotionally there and he's connected to the character and he knows he's doing something neat and a little bit ahead of its time. So he Mm -hmm. does it. Um, I like the idea that this is very much trans rights and it is like in the consciousness before that happens, uh, more broadly in Hollywood. Um, I mean, beyond like Rocky Horror, it's not that kind of camp. It's really just a celebration. I, I think the first time I really expected that this would just be like a campy send-up of Ed Wood, but, but this movie loves Ed Wood. Yeah, well, and, and the, the troupe there feels very much in the the vein of like a John Waters film, you know, mm-hmm. and that they're all a bunch of, you know, weirdos and outcasts and stuff who find camaraderie and friendship in, you know, coming together to make movies, you know, and that's, that's what the whole principle is about. In fact, uh, I believe Tim Burton was shown a couple of uh, Ed Wood films by John Waters, which was okay. you know, kind of his first experience with, uh, you know, Ed Wood as a hey, filmmaker. If, if you're going to see him, please be introduced by John Waters to, to Ed Wood. I mean, what a perfect thing to do. That's, that's how I want to be introduced to everything. I know. <laughs> I'd like it. I need to explore more John Waters. I think I'll, I'd like him a lot. Yeah, so I guess for a primer, we should talk about who Ed Wood is himself before we get into the film's depiction of him and, and Burton's vision there. Uh, he he kind of first got recognition after he died and you know, like a couple years after and his movie Plan 9 from Outer Space was declared the worst film ever made and instantly it became a cult favorite and so, you know, soon did the rest of his films. Do you have um, any experience with Ed Wood's films? I've only seen Plan 9, which I could see the, the cult uh, mentality of it, that it's, it's so bizarre and so underperformed that it becomes charming. I don't really believe in a so bad it's good ideal that I think, uh, I think there are good parts in it. And I think there's like a genuineness to Ed Wood. And like, a, um, it's just endearing how a personal personally invested he is 
how he believes in everything he shoots, I think. I, I see why people respond to it, because there is humanity there. I mean, he believes in what he's shooting. He might not be shooting something good, but he yeah. believes 100% he's shooting the best thing. That, that and that's, that's something the film really gets across, and, and why those So Bad It's Good movies, or any movies, I think, really, uh, we connect with in some ways, because the people behind them believe in what they're doing, even if it's total garbage nonsense on you know on screen uh, it takes still... a little bit of earnestness for me I, it takes some self-belief for me to get into like the so bad it's good oh it has to because yeah. you can't you can't watch things ironically i think like that you can't no. i mean you, you can't... can't be ironic on purpose is what i, I yeah think I... yeah basically uh i haven't gone out of my way to watch them in full uh i i have a policy in that i don't seek out bad movies typically uh, I have seen like some of the clips though. I've seen the stuff like with Bella Lugosi and Glenn or Glenda and stuff <laughs> yelling, pull the strings and, and while well, Buffalo, you know, images like pass over him. Very it's bizarre so funny. stuff. Yeah. Very bizarre. <laughs> I think and, I, I really love one thing about this movie that it's always doing that as well. It's doing um, kind of the fade overs and uh, some of the weird shots, but it's doing them super well. I mean, Burton knows what he's doing, and any knows when he's breaking the rules. Like, I don't know if Ed Wood has like a real cinema appreciation beyond, beyond he wants to be Orson Welles, for, but for him, that doesn't mean he's making movies of that quality. It just means that he's, you know, producing, writing, directing, acting. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a big thing, uh, a, a motif that they establish throughout the film. I think they call back to that. There's a big uh, Citizen Kane poster in his little apartment. Next to the Lugosi ones, yeah, it, it gets a lot very, of screen time. Very prominent, hard to miss. I think I think what's so lovely about that is that like the greatest filmmaker of all time uh, is such a big inspiration to the worst. I I think that's just poetic right. cinema. Oh, it's interesting because it's stuff like that could seem like a conceit for the film, like right. to create the <laughs> irony there, but it's genuine. Like yeah. the film itself is fairly accurate like i think it leaves out some things like ed's alcoholism and such and it and it i think contorts the timeline a little bit like the meeting of of bella and such but generally like all of the things that happened happened the people who were there were there you know a lot of the interactions were the same so it's it's surprisingly accurate i would say for a a biopic which is a, a strength not that they always have to be some of the best biopics take plenty of liberties but like the one thing like he didn't meet orson welles i don't believe so that is like one fabrication well that moment so the scene i guess uh to, to jump ahead to that where ed wood has this kind of fantastical encounter with orson welles is uh an interesting and odd one at, at lots of points uh for it's also reasons. my favorite of the movie for some reasons uh well, there's, there's weird things. So so I guess just to first address on a technical level, it's odd because Vincent D'Onofrio, who looks incredible as Orson Welles, is... He does a uh, good job. He's dubbed over by Maurice LaMarche. Oh, is he really? Yeah. Okay. And if you're familiar with Maurice LaMarche, uh, as I am, because I watched lots of cartoons in the 90s, uh, he, he uses that same Orson Welles parody voice... <laughs> for the brain and okay, yeah. the brain and so when i realize that i can see how the dub doesn't quite match up with d'onofrio's performance so it's a little odd there to begin with but also that in the conversation he's complaining about 
Charlton Heston playing a Mexican in his movie. But it, that was Orson Welles' decision as a writer, if, yeah. if you know about the history of Touch of Evil. So that's also kind of odd. <laughs> Orson the, Welles always being represented strangely. Yeah, but the meeting itself uh, works very well in a film. Like, it, you know, it, it uses that kind of godly, you know, hue of, of Wells as this person in, in a uh, kind of transcendental moment because it doesn't feel real within the film there. I, I, I like to buy into this idea that it's not so much that he met Orson Welles here is that he more or less had a vision of this and it's that kind of realization. It's, it's a kind of metaphorical moment, I feel like, in the film. That's yeah, I, feel like, grounded. I feel like he's already spiritually inspired and he may as well have met them and have the talk with them. It's like, uh, it's like how I feel when I read certain writers, I feel very taken with it and I feel guided by it. Like Ezra Pound, right? Yeah. Like it, it changes your whole identity. Um, yeah. N narratively, like from a, from a script structural point, it's a very good idea and moment to have. And it's well set up with all of the Orson Welles talk preceding that. But but definitely, and I think the unreality aspect of it contributes to the feeling and what it goes on to do. And again, because again, it's not like the the dialogue Wells has there isn't very Wellsian either. He's like, go no. make your dreams come true. <laughs> That's kind of why I find it so funny too. I mean, yeah, just the contrast between them is extremely funny. And that he would meet Orson Wells and he'd be encouraging. I also find funny. Right? I no, I don't. I don't think Wells would be. Yeah, <laughs> but it is. It's funny because, again, you have who is considered to be the greatest filmmaker of all time, you know, made the greatest film ever versus the guy who made the worst film ever made Yeah, you know, by reputation. It's a very funny, uh, you know, confluence there. I, I just like that cinematic meeting. And for me, that just stands out as what I remember about the movie. It, I, I just love like all the Citizen Kane in it and all the talk about Wells anyway and all the um, all the production insights. The inside baseball is really fun here. Jesus, Calvin, I, those are my words. You're taking the words out of my mouth. That's You sound uh, like me right now. I just like how close we get inside the project. and I, that, that's, that's definitely one of the bigger aspects of it, is that the filmmaking part, the insight to the filmmaking, particularly of a small production like this, is a lot of fun. And the film has a lot of fun with it. It's very comedic. Like, There's that scene where they're filming where they have Tor Johnson walking through and, and Ed's coaching him through. He's like, you gotta get to that door. And when he Tor tries Johnson, going, so funny. Yeah, when he when he tries walking through the door, his shoulder like bumps into it and he shakes the sand. And, <laughs> he's, and he's, he's like, like he would have done that anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, keep, keep the print. He's like, don't you want another take? He's like, no. <laughs> That's exactly what he would have done in that situation anyway. He would have done that probably has to deal with that his whole life. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, Johnny Depp, by the way, uh, surprising. Uh, yes. I never find him this connectable in this in in his role. I mean, obviously, he's gone on to do a lot of costume movies. Uh, yes. And I think he's very comfortable in this kind of like drag more than if he were playing himself, which he never does. Yeah, that's that's the other interesting angle. Again, not, not only with like the bunny character and the other odd crowd is that, you know, Ed's uh, transvestitism, you know, the, the way he likes to wear women's clothing, particularly pink and gore sweaters, which as you can see, I picked for my background this week. You did. That's what that is. Okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, it, you know, is a huge aspect of him. And, and of course, it's the inspiration for the first film he makes, you know, Glenn or Glenda. And there's that whole bit where he uh, adapts parts of his life into the script there and plays the role himself. I mean, like trans filmmaking, like on a large level, 
only kind of taken off. I mean, there's there's movements now, and um, there haven't been. So um, another thing that draws me to modern film, that kind of representation being normalized and and in uh, bigger pictures. Um, I I I don't know. I think it's I think it's really special that uh, um, Burton kind of takes it seriously and he celebrates it. Um, he never demeans the characters for feeling this way. I feel like he accepts them at face value and for what they want themselves to be. It's a it's a very accepting and welcome film. Film. This was actually this film was uh, introduced to me by someone who was a a, a trans friend uh, when I met them, and this was obviously a very you know inspiring film to them when they uh, saw it. But um, particularly, there's like the you know scene of everyone together, no matter who they are. You know, they're all very accepting of Ed and his eccentricities. There's the great scene at like the rap party where he's doing the the dance with the veil and everything, and uh, I I think it has it because because everyone's participating in it. And he's got Bella dancing with him at one moment, uh, and at the same time I don't it doesn't villainize anyone who thinks against them. Like like Sarah Jessica Parker has a very her character as Ed's you know girlfriend at the time has a very clear like breakdown and inability to process his you know his identity and his you know yeah. feelings. And, and I mean, she has this total meltdown at the party there, which I think is, but, but Burton is still able to make her sympathetic and her, you know, uh, you know, her, her feelings, you know, uh, understood that, mm. and, and she, she takes herself out of the situation and it would never like, it doesn't ever come across as insulting. I don't think. I don't think uh, so either. I think she's just grappling with the reality of it. Yeah. And again, I think this I think this film's good at approaching things at their reality too. As much as it fantasizes and stylizes um and really overemphasizes his whole style, I think it, it's really appreciative of everyone in the story and treats them uh fairly. Uh, maybe maybe Lugosi gets off worse here. Yeah, but Lugosi had uh quite quite the downturn at this point in his history anyway. I mean but I wouldn't say it's worse so much as honest. You know, the, the film doesn't turn away from the deteriorating aspects of his history. Um, you know, his drug use, his, you know, very uh, odd behaviors and stuff. It does skip over like some weird things. Like I was, I was sad to see this time having learned now that the production design didn't include the nude portrait of Clara Bow he kept hanging above his mantel place for yeah. his entire life. <laughs> Legosi, it's so strange when you when you go in and he calls him back to his house. It feels like you're going into like a like a, a Frankenstein miniature, like a Dracula's castle or something. Like the lighting becomes like a universal. Well, um, that movie, was the way the faces are. That was very much true of Legosi as a person. He he allowed the role of Dracula to define who he was, and that mm. was the only way he was ever able to really make money is by capitalizing off of that idea and you know, the company of Ed Wood and his, you know, gang of weirdos was, uh, you know, where he found solace in his late years of life. He did feel welcomed by Ed, you know, and he did, you know, create a, a genuine friendship with him, which was, you know, the idea of that was really the inspiration for Burton as well to take up the project because he saw reflections of his own friendship with Vincent Price, you know, in Ed Wood's and Bella Lugosi's relationship. I like that it's just not about a guy who makes bad movies. That's largely a friendship movie, and it's about inclusiveness. And uh, like, just by him being an addict or him wanting to be transvestite, that's it, there's no judgment there, and they're able to accept each other on those terms because right. they feel yeah. like they have this malady that they share in some way. 
there's moments where understood. where Ed just kind of looks the other way while you know Lugosi goes and shoots up in the other room, you know, you know, he does it very uh, openly, but tries to be discreet still. And of that, course, he's he's also supportive when uh, Bella wants to go to rehab. That one shot where he's leaving the room, he, he he's got to go take his medicine. It's so brilliant because it shows him turn into his addiction uh, behind the curtain. You see him become a monster of some kind. You see the silhouette growing and growing as he gets to his drugs. Mm -hmm. And I would, that, that I think captures addiction so perfectly. And, and just that cycle. And the way it's all framed as well, the film is shot wonderfully. It does look like a, a 1930s universal horror film and it incorporates a great degree of, of uh, you know, uh, Dutch angles to emphasize dramatic moments throughout and there's a huge there's a significant contrast in the black and white when they're sitting alone watching like white zombie together and Bella starts doing the hands <laughs> thing <laughs> pulling with his hands it's it's so brilliant and but it, um, yeah it's lit so well uh you know I, I had read as well that you know um Originally, the film was going to be made at Columbia, but they didn't want to do it in black and white. And oh, Burton, my God. Yeah, Burton walked away with it from there. He's like, I'm taking this elsewhere. Ruined the whole movie that way. Yeah. No, it's it, it's got to be. Because it, it captures not only the feeling of the, the 1930s horror films, but the uh, the 1950s sci-fi B-films that were being made in the atmosphere of Hollywood. If you did it in color, I, I read elsewhere, like, like there's also the kind of legend rumors that part of the reason why is because nobody could decide what Bella Lugosi would look like in color. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, uh, I, it works so well in black and white. I wouldn't have it any other way. From from the opening, you know it's a special film, the way it's moving through. And um, you see all these objects that bring to life those like B-movie of old and new ideas. Um, I didn't I didn't know that there was someone who predated Elibra, by the way. So yeah uh, that's interesting for me historically because I, I don't think i ever connected that in the movie with vampire she wasn't like yeah. super big i'm pretty sure probably more people over here and I, I read as well because i looked into her a little bit after this like okay. all the footage of her from her show is basically gone so like you can't go back okay. and watch any of that stuff it was just like a host tv thing when elvira definitely made way more out of the personality and better you know, syndicated and marketed i think yeah um, but she did then, try and sue, as the as the end titles tell us there. Right. Yeah, I didn't realize all that was a, really a dispute. It's been a long time since I've seen Ed Wood. Yeah, uh, but it's it's really great, and uh, you know, I, I think one of the other interesting things to talk about as well is uh, the score for the film, because that's something that helps set the tone right off the bat as well. Uh, is that something that ever stood out to you watching? I mean, I like it, and I think it suits the film. I don't really have any particular notes on it. Well, the score is interesting because this is one of the few Tim Burton movies that isn't scored by Danny Elfman. Mm -hmm. They had, like, a big fight at one point around this time, and so he hired uh, Howard Shore instead. And I, I actually, I think Danny Elfman probably would have been too, you know, too much in, in this kind of case here. The score for uh, Ed Wood is... Um, kind of expressive and, and gothic but reserved enough to know when to kind of hold back it creates a, a spooky burtony atmosphere without going all in on the uh you know orchestration there's some great use of like uh theremins and such snuck in there to give it that that sci-fi twist and it, and it has a real sense of um melancholy for the darker moments of the film because the the film also does a really great job of balancing the comedic silliness of 
uh, Martin Landau, you know, jumping around in a pool with a rubber octopus, but also the seriousness of having a drug addiction and being at the end of his ropes, you know, you know, career-wise is Lugosi. Burton does have really bad film impulses too. I mean, he could play into the same thing. So I see why he connects so well to Ed Wood because his ideas can be out there as well and they can be um, otherworldly. And uh, you could tell it's something that would happen from like a, like a sheltered background. Like I think like in, in Burton's like college days, he was, you know, very reclusive. And um, I, I think you feel those ideas between both directors. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of foreshadowing, I guess, to see that Burton would become more like Ed Wood than perhaps he wanted to be. Or maybe he wants to be. I, I mean, I can't tell because he celebrates it so much in the film. I don't think he actually cares that he's making bad movies. Oh, yeah, th this is really a mark of one of the last, you know, creative, you know, you know, uh, sparks of genius from, from Burton here, where his style is complementary to the material and not, you know, overstating itself or becoming, you know, a brand all, you know, of its own. Right. You know, it, it doesn't protest too much at this point. It's it's really, it's it's secondary and it, and, it, and it becomes this great idea. Like, it's hard to imagine someone else telling the story of Ed Wood better than this is through the Burton style. And it's not excessive, you know, uh, you know, he really tries to adhere to, uh, you know, being complimentary of Ed Wood and particularly of his films. There's a lot of his films incorporated into the story here. Yeah, I guess I've seen most Burton incidentally. I don't feel like I've ever gone on a push for it, but I mean, he's a he's a fun director that I like to encounter, even when he's doing really um, dumb things like Dumbo. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would call those later things fun, but like, let's say pre-2008 Burton is pretty manageable outside of like what Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is a giant piece of shit but I just like something like Dumbo because even like underneath the bullshit Disney layering you could see how anti-corporate the movie is and it's yeah, such a strange thing for it to turn anti-corporate oh well, it's just so ironic because Burton obviously was very like anti-corporate individualist you know visionary you know for the long time and now he's that thing that he shat on for all of those years he's he's the big bully who made fun of the weirdo kids that you know now yeah i mean uh that just i don't know like what um do you like sleepy hollow i haven't got to that i like sleepy hollow i don't know if it's great necessarily it's it's missing something but visually it's really great it still has a lot of the the brilliant you know gothic it's got a great gothic atmosphere but i don't know if it's got much beyond that i don't know would would big fish be kind of like the last push that wasn't directed by him was it was, it was it was, was it was okay uh i mean i i like sweeney todd as well that was a little later but it came like you know th th that one's more of a you know uh, an outlier amongst trash Sweeney Todd, that's the Barber movie, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I, I really enjoyed it the one time I've seen it. Um, I, I haven't really thought about it since, but I like all the songs. I think it's worth seeing. Yeah, it's it's hard to go wrong when you've got the good formula of the material that he's working with is not only suited for him, but, you know, very good on its own right. I mean, shame, like, Alice couldn't work. <laughs> I, I just saw the Svank Major. I'm sure everyone will appreciate that. Uh pronunciation the spank major <laughs> alice which you know completely uh enlivened like uh, animated creativity i i love that and i i don't feel like he even came close to 
any depth that he just handed something in. I, there's I there's even... like a five minute scene of a CGI Johnny Depp doing a, a dance. So uh, I, that's I all you need to know. Is it even directed? I, I guess that's where I get to with these Disney movies is I get confused because it feels like there's not a director even working on it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at least we still have all these classics from him, you know, yeah. There's there's stuff like this, of course, and then like Edward Scissorhands and Beetlejuice are, are major accomplishments, but I th- I think they both end up like th- they're still more more Burton than you know film sometimes. Yeah, right. Um, I I don't know. Mars Attacks can still be fun. It, it I, can I, it can be, but you can see where it's starting to slip. You know. <laughs> of course. Uh, weirdly, I like Dark Shadows. I think that's. Yeah, Dark Shadows is the name of that one. Uh, I think I'm alone on that. Uh, I've heard some people like it. Like I guess Mild that period, uh, again, there's like 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 small peaks in this period now, but generally everything is downhill after Ed Wood. Like I, I think it's probably like a good like uh, five out of ten, if at best, maybe a good four. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's enjoyable in some bad vampire musical ways. Uh, well, it's a shame that all of these crappy cgi laden you know uninspired messes make lots of money and ed wood totally flopped in 94 right. it, it it made no money it was it, it performed very poorly even though it was a is a vision at the time and I'm, I'm sure something has to do with the fact that disney probably wasn't the best at promoting it i imagine uh, yeah I, I can't imagine they did anything for this well because it's, it's not like a family friendly film oh, no, it's, it's got a lot no, of language not. it's very language they, they let bella throw out f-bombs left and right very humorously just a lot of stuff about like the transvestites and stuff it's not something disney would market especially in yeah. that era and i imagine that was probably key to its failure but it's yeah. it's really it's grown a huge love and fan base i've seen like anyone i've ever talked about edward with loves it you know yeah I haven't, uh, I haven't heard any like really you know any significant complaints that could actually land within the film it, it kind of led to like the whole thing which is like the modern tommy Wiseau, right like the disaster artist is a remake of ed wood essentially. yeah that was all the talk when disaster artist came out was that everyone talked about it in the vein of ed wood but like obviously like an inferior you know accomplishment in that regard because it's, James it's, Franco isn't much of a director. It's good, but it's rehashing it. Um, neither Dave Franco, based on the rental last week. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if they should be directing. They're so handsome. Just stand in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. D- did you like The Disaster Artist at all? Or I do. I do like The Disaster Artist. But, but not as much as Ed Wood. <laughs> uh, that's the problem. Going back and watching it now, I realize the scenes where they're coming into the theater and everything are just lifted like whole cloth and a lot of the interactions and uh, peculiarities of so seem more to be about Ed Wood now, now that I come back to this. Well, but, Ed Wood has earnestness to him and, and genuine feeling, and his yeah. quirks feel human, whereas Tommy Wiseau feels like alien. an alien and an yeah. enigma. <laughs> Where is he from? He won't even tell you. Right? I think we found out recently, but we did. I, don't, I didn't care enough to remember where it was. <laughs> uh, yeah, we did find out a little bit more information. And of course, that's based on the book, but... Even the the, the disaster, book of the disaster artist, artist is a is a very good book. I have yeah. to say, it was a very satisfying read. You should probably just I, read that. I think it's a satisfying movie too. I mean, I think it gets there. It's it's not a great movie, but I just I, I just never got around to it. I was excited to see it, and then like as the buzz kind of tapered off, I just like 
didn't find the desire to go to the, the cinema to see it. Yeah. <laughs> and then I just couldn't muster the energy to rent it. Um, I, I feel like that is more, a little bit more mocking of, of what happened, but, but also celebrating Tommy was, uh, I think there's a little bit less to celebrate for me there. Um, I, that's, that's not kind of what I mean by like earnestness. <laughs> I, I feel like that's a little false to me. The room. Yeah. Or, and you can probably unironically enjoy Ed Wood movies because you can yeah. see the passion behind them, even if the execution is probably the worst you've ever seen. I just I like the room, but not for like the reasons that are obvious, like the technical reasons. I just think it's, I, I don't see why, you know, mm-hmm. I don't find it funny. But I mean, I don't find bad movies funny in general. I'm miserable watching <laughs> bad movies, which is why I don't. I watch people watch bad movies and then they tell me why they're funny. And then I laugh at that. <laughs> I think like after years of covering video games and having to do like a bad video game, which could be 20, 35 hours, you yeah. know, then going to movies, I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to sit back for 90 minutes and, and let this wash over me. I'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, I have not, you know, managed to find the patience for, for that kind of stuff. As long as it's failing in an interesting way. I just don't want five out of 10 movies. That's, that's all I'm trying to avoid really. Right. But but Edward's certainly not that. It's a it's a magnificent film with a, a great cast, as we kind of point out. I think we kind of glossed over Martin Landau, though, who is I think really like the the great force of this here because he really captures Bela Lugosi's spirit so well, and he's so funny and humorous throughout and earnest. Uh, he was the first actor to win an Oscar for portraying a movie star. I don't know if you do that. I didn't know that. Yeah, That's very interesting. Yeah, and um, then like a decade later, Kate Blanchett won for playing Catherine Hepburn in The Aviator. Mm-hmm. But no, Martin Landau was first for playing Bela Lugosi. He's excellent, and I I think when my wife walked in, she thought I was watching a Bela Lugosi movie. It was one of those scenes that that you could mistake for it. And I think I think just the ability to believe in it and buy into it as like a 1930s one, and you know, uh, blown up in modern filmmaking. It just her reaction kind of cements that it's so successful with him. Well, it can be hard to do as well because Bela Lugosi himself is already such a caricature. Yeah. Uh, and certainly by this point in his life, he was, you know, uh, a kind of ridiculous shell of the role that made him famous. It became just, sad. Yeah. Yeah. And and it is sad here as well, but it's also funny. You know, Martin Landau gives it the humorous twist. There's, there's a very human element and all of the, the extremeness and the theatrical quality of the character really is the character and not like Martin Landau just hamming it up. You know, I think, I think even if you're not here for Ed Wood and you, and you just get what Landau's doing, I mean, who, who doesn't want the um, biopic of Bela Lugosi? I, that's a fantastic takeaway. Yeah. And that's also kind of what this is at the same time here. You know, it's as much about the the end of Bella's story as it is about Ed Wood's story himself. You know, the the two are intertwined and it's told in, in such a wonderful way, in a creative, you know, magnificent way, a beautiful visual way, uh, you know, an entertaining, you know, whimsical way. There's there's so many facets of Ed Wood, you know, that are just a you know, wonderful encapsulation of creative spirit, I think is what the film boils down to. And the, like you said, the, the acceptance of individuals for their, you know, uniqueness. Yeah, I really love the movie. I like it even more than I thought I did. Um, almost perfect for me. 
Really, yeah. I mean, how could it not be? I think I can't think of anything that's really wrong. There's yeah, no, wrong, really problematic, wrong not charming. Yeah, <laughs> it's, I, it's such a you know perfect little film. You know, all uh, tied together with a wonderful cast of you know eclectic characters you want to spend time with. And very funny. It has like that through line to a filmmaking in the process, like a something like The Player or like a Gods and Monsters. It's like exploring a celebrity in really interesting ways and uh I, there's a lot of subtext there there's a lot that's interesting and, about these characters and how many cynical hollywood films have you seen like the player or like you know like sunset boulevard or something like that like the big name movies about movies we think about all the time are very critical of hollywood very yeah. damning they're and very this, smart and pinky you know? yeah and, and and ed wood is very embracing of filmmaking not necessarily hollywood you know uh you know it just happens to be where the place is but like we said it is kind of like that john waters style of getting your friends together and shooting something cheap you know just for the fun of it you know and, and making something i've often thought that globally we just accept hollywood because it's self-critical of itself and that it's so suspicious of itself that we have to accept it it's that it's that facade it puts on yeah. this air of criticism so that we don't criticize it exactly it does the work for us in the movies so we don't have to well and it's very soft you know in, in cases yeah, of like is. sunset yeah. boulevard or the player it still glamorizes itself but it's like but we're all so bad <laughs> right <laughs> i think i think at least i mentioned barton fink but at least it does a more honest job of of damning it and uh not as celebratory mm-hmm and, and there's room for the celebration as well. And I think, and again, it's just that Ed Wood is such a wholesome celebration of filmmaking and camaraderie uh, and, you know, of Hollywood history, you know, okay. in, in lots of ways, while while not turning away from the harsher side of it, which is, you know, the, such the wonderful aspect of it, that it balances comedy, drama, whimsy, and fantasy, and, you know, this very, you know, neat, creative, beautiful package yeah, I think that's well said. I feel like we covered it as about as well as we can. Not so many new movies this week. Yeah, I'm glad we have this one. Though. Do we have anything new coming out next week that we can kind of tease or look forward to? I'll have at least two things for screener. I need to go over uh, embargoes before I give names out. Okay, well, two things, things. Two things to look forward to then, listeners. I I want to see if there's any surprises. Uh, the the stuff comes out fast and random right now, so. Uh, kind of just bear with me as we get through these next couple months. Yeah. In the meantime, uh, we'll have we'll still be talking about old movies because I make you. <laughs> I think the room's about ninety degrees. I need to stop it before the computer okay. blows up. Now. All right, don't die of heat stroke. <laughs> Won't do. Talk to you soon, Calvin. Beware. Beware. Beware of the. Big green dragon that sits on your doorstep. Eats little boys, puppy dog tails, and big fat snails. Beware, take care. Beware. Wait! String! Pull the string! Cut!